You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. Today's guests are Mikael Jonsson, the co-founder and general partner at Ox. You need the right product and in the right market, right? But a lot of companies have that opportunity. But the way they think about building the company and how they grow it, they're setting themselves up for failure because they're not investing properly in scalable go-to-market and in product. And Fredrik Skanse, the co-founder and CEO at Funnel. When you're seeking product market fit, I think that is what you should focus on. The moat thing, I think, you can get your head around later. If you try to do too many things early, you will die because you'll never get product market fit. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the podcast here. Uh, happy to have you back. And this is actually the third episode in a three-parter where we talk about product market fit, go-to-market fit, and growth and moat. That will be the third one. We have Mikael at Ox with us again, but this time we brought another guest to the show. Yes, we did. We brought Frederick, CEO and co-founder of Funnel. And we're going to talk a little bit about... What happens after 10, 15, 20 millions in ARR? We're all here to build great companies that are going to be here for a very, very long time. And it's a different ball game when you cross the 20 million mark. So tune in if you are preparing for that journey and see if we can find some great tips in this episode. Here we go. Today, we are very happy to have Fredrik Skanse, the CEO and co-founder of Funnel, and Mikael Jonsson, the co-founder and general partner at Ox here as guest in the SAS Nordic podcast. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks very much, Thomas. How are you guys today? How's it going today? We're, we're pretty cold. Um, it was minus 17 when I drove the kids to school this morning. Really? Wow. <laughs> well, we live in the tropical parts here. So we had like, I had plus one this morning. Feel that. <laughs> you live in the tropics. Yeah, we live in the tropics. We live in the tropics. So, hey guys, it's, it's great to have you here. And I feel like it's like an end to a fantastic Netflix series. So, so Mikael, we've been running this three-part series with you on product market fit, go-to market fit, and now we're at the final, the grand finale, the final episode here, growth and mouth phase. But before we jump into that, just help us and the audience refresh the memories a little bit. Like, tell us a little bit, what is product market fit and go to market fit? Set the scene for what's about to happen in the next half hour here. Yeah, I mean, what we've been talking about in the previous episodes is this sort of staged approach in terms of how you think about building and growing a really successful SaaS company. And that all starts with defining and building for product market fit and, you know, setting your priorities really clearly to make sure you achieve that sort of milestone phase before you start uh, over-indexing and really prioritizing and optimizing for the next stage, which we call go-to-market fit, which, you know, where product market fit is all about getting a product out there, finding an initial customer base and making sure that they stay with you and that they buy more of that product. The go-to-market fit phase is all about scaling uh, scalable marketing and sales organization to take that product to a much bigger audience, right? And what we're going to be talking about today is what happens once you've actually done that, 
once you enter the phase which we called growth and moat, and as you try to build a really large company uh, and scale that beyond, you know, several tens of millions into the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, and you know, from hundreds of people maybe into thousands of people in your organization. So b- before we move on and then talk more about this, maybe you could just briefly introduce uh, Funnel and Ox for us. So Fredrik, tell us about Funnel. So we operate in the intersection of marketing and data. The really big thing in our industry is that digital marketing suddenly has pretty much become marketing. The big budgets now online. This is great. It's the biggest shift in marketing since Ogilvy invented modern advertising. Suddenly marketing can actually measure what they're doing and they can see how much they contribute to revenue and be responsible for generating revenue, which is fantastic. But to be to be able to do that, to actually be able to measure, you have to have the infrastructure in place to do it. And that's what Funnel does. So we provide what we call a marketing data hub that allows you as a marketer to get access to all your data, put it together and analyze it and see see what you, how things are going. And roughly, so, so we understand, what's the size of your operations today? We're about $35 million in annualized recurring revenue. Okay. Um, grew just shy of 70% last year. Wow, that's amazing. And when it comes to number of employees? Um, we're about 340 people. Okay. Um, grew that by about 125 people last year. All right. And Mikael, some words about Ox. Yeah, Ox is a niche venture capital firm uh, investing exclusively in B2B SaaS and doing so at the scale-up stage. That means these companies that have found their product market fit and are trying to build for go-to-market fit and trying to support them on the go-to-market fit journey and beyond into this growth and mode phase that we're talking about. Funnel is an incredibly excellent case in point where we invested in 2018 and continue to be a really happy shareholder. Awesome. So let's talk more about the moat and growth phase. That's why we're here today. And and Mika, I want to start with you a little bit. From an investor perspective, like what is your take on this? Are there particular characteristics that define now the SaaS company is in this phase? Is it a certain amount of ARR or you know revenue or people? What is it? Yeah, there there are several things. I, I think, you know, clearly, like you said size matters uh, and that can be both in terms of ARR and revenue or size of organization. I, I think typically what people will say once you hit several million, you know, several tens of millions of dollars of ARR, so say that you're you know 15 to 20 and beyond, that's when you really start to hit this phase. And it's probably something that, you know, goes on up until the billions of ARR for certain companies, right? But right. I think getting to critical mass it's it's really at the point where you know that this works. You know you don't know how great of a company this is going to be necessarily, but you know that it's going to be a good company, and that typically means several tens of millions of ARR, say twenty twenty five million dollars of ARR. Right. Uh, I think in terms of size of organization, that usually means you know you're getting to several hundreds of people, and you're building you know to increase that significantly, even going to the thousands of people. Uh, in terms of how you think about growth, you will have a proven recipe for how to do profitable growth. So you will have a customer acquisition machine where you have reliable metrics around things like CAC payback, uh, lifetime CAC to lifetime value, uh, like LTD to CAC, and uh, magic numbers, etc. And you'll probably also have a long-term plan and vision about how to build a 
profitable company. And I don't mean just, you know, profitable in terms of customer acquisition, but actually are at the operating level there. Right. And, and Frederick, does this resemble well with your view on this and your journey here? Like, you know, when did you feel that we're past the traditional go-to-market fit phase now and we're entering this phase? What was that magical threshold for you? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, I think one way to view it is that um, to be able to successfully make this transition, there, there actually, you can think about the companies that don't make the transition, right? And so there are actually a lot of companies that, that grow well into $10 million in ARR. But then when they go start getting up towards $20 million in ARR, their growth starts to really slow down. Um, and, and, you know, it's not clear that they're going to grow much beyond $30 million. Um, or it's going to take a long time. Um, right. You're down to like 15, 20% growth rate. It, it takes a really long time when you're at 20 million. Um, so if you, if you can, if you can come into $20 million in ARR with a strong growth rate, you know, above 50%, I think that's sort of when you're, when you feel like it's going to get big and, and you can see yourself understanding how you can play and play, you know, plan another year with a similar type of growth rate after that. Um, and when you then extrapolate it, you, you, you can see a path. If you squint, you can see a path to $100 million in ARR. Uh, not, not, um, not just like by, by extending a spreadsheet, but actually like we, we can do this. I, I, you have a feeling for the business that, that you know, you're, you're getting into $30 million and you can, you can see how you can get to $100 million. Yeah. And as you mentioned, a lot of companies don't make this. So what would you say? Why is that? What, what are people failing with when they are sort of going into this stage or why don't they go into this stage? Yeah, because, because you think like, you know, holy smokes, they cracked $10 million. They're on a pretty good trajectory. Like what happens? Why does it stop there suddenly? If, if I can go first, and, and this is, you know, obviously something that's close to my heart and it's all about, you know, obviously... You need the right product and in the right market, right? But a lot of companies have that opportunity. But the way they think about building the company and how they grow it, they're setting themselves up for failure because they're not investing properly in scalable go-to-market and in product. So you will have a company that is sort of brute by brute force hacking its way to 10 to maybe 15 million, but haven't really found proper go-to-market fit. So what Frederick explained that flywheel effect of being able to grow, like Frederick said, 70% year on year at scale, those companies simply don't have it because they haven't invested in that machine. That's a really big mistake that we see a lot of the times. Yeah, But even if you go in with that kind of numbers, 50% uh, growth and so on, where, where can it go wrong when you are in that motion and you have entered this stage? Do, do you have any thoughts on that, Frederick? Yeah, so... I think that when you get to the scale, 30 million and above, I actually think strategy plays a bigger role than it did earlier on, right? So we've seen a bunch of companies in our space um, figure out a way to get cheap lead generation uh, by aligning with a partner or a channel or, or something. And... Like leads probably are the most expensive things in SaaS, uh, except for product development. Um, and leads is what drives the business. So you can you can you can get really good growth, and you can get it for a relatively long period of time. Um, but you may not. But you you are then you are then executing on a strategy in this example, 
executing a strategy where you where you're you're you're, you're optimizing for leads and you're building product and and so on just to get those leads. Now, at some point, uh, you know that might that might not put you in a good strategic position. It might be a commoditized position where others can also build similar product and get those leads, or you become a you know a, a sort of thin sliver in where somebody else controls it or. That end up party may decide to do what you do or there might not be other things right um mm. and if you then come into the 20 millions 25 millions and, and, and growth starts to slow it's hard to recover from that because you spent you know four years building product in a certain direction so you got to kind of and so and so you know it, it's a bit too late to start to think about this when you're 30 million you have to actually in the, when you are executing on that second stage of the growth stage, you have to start thinking about strategy. Yeah, you have to look at your um, you have to look at your your market. I think going through a positioning exercise helps here because positioning is very much about picking a corner mm. uh, where, where, where there is white space and where you're good and others are not, and and then sort of sticking with that. Um, so you know, so picking picking white space. But that's also a real problem. I, I mean, you have to really have conviction that this is it's not just like we're doing something different from others, but also we're doing it because actually there's a logic behind it. We think this is a better way to do it and so on. Yeah. Um, and, and looking at total addressable market, that there actually is a sizable market in this, because if you're going to get to $100 million, you need, <laughs> you, know, you need a pretty sizable market. Mm. Um, and um, so, for example, if you look at marketing automation as a category, um, that was a good category, but but it sort of actually stalled a little bit at certain size. And you saw people like HubSpot pivoting in very elegantly and very executing really well into CRM, which is a much bigger category. And then their growth reignite. Right? So, so yeah, so I think it's a it, so that that's the one I, I would add. Yeah. The second stage is about building a growth engine that you can scale. Now that growth engine likely can only scale that much. You actually got to keep building it, keep diversifying it, and keep thinking about what it's going to look like when you get larger. Um, and it's going to look differently. Maybe you go up a little more towards enterprises, maybe, you know, and so on, right? So, so you, you know, so, so, that that's also important okay yeah if, if i might just add to that i mean one of the you know you know first recommendations in this sort of go to market fit phase is to be super focused and double down on what really works in terms of demand generation or go to market motions right but like you said Fred, it's like you have to diversify that once you get into this phase and i think that's it's sort of, sort of counterintuitive. You, you tell someone that you have to be super focused and you know laser focused and just doing this and doing that really well. And then all of a sudden, you're supposed to be diversifying from that. that. That's just the nature of building a much, much larger company, right? But there's a lot of companies that fail to transition from one sort of focus to the next, which is critical here. Right. Yeah. And the the diversification here that you talk about that's the moat part right yeah um yes and no i mean because i I wasn't familiar with that term you know that growth okay i get growth uh moat not so sure exactly what you mean so so no i think it's something different so 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 i think what we're talking about when it comes to diversification is that you know to when you enter the growth phase when you're at like you know sub 10 million dollars or five million dollars and it's about like what you need to do is find one channel to forgo to market and one motion that works. And what you should just do, which is what Mika is saying, is 
double down on it, triple down on it, don't do anything else, just scale it because it works. Right. And it'll get you to 10 million, it'll get you to 15 million. But then, <laughs> then you need to start thinking, okay, how this is not probably going to get me to 50. Right. So what do I need to get to 50? Well, I need to diversify. So what can you do? You can add other channels. You can add other, ge other geographies. You know, you just need more engines uh, that you can rely on. Right. So that's the diversification part. Moat is a different thing, right? So moat is what is your competitive advantage? What stops you know, Y Combinator company getting $10 million in, a, in, in funding you know, from just like coming into your space and, and trying to do what you do, but just a little, in their view, better, right? What, what stops that? Yeah, and I think that's the interesting part. And we're going to come to that in, in just a second. Like, I'd like to know, Frederick, what your moat is and, and how you built that. But just before we get to that, you talked a little bit that now you, you at this stage when you're, you know, above the 30 million, you spend a lot more time on strategy and so on. Can you talk to us a little bit when you are in this growth and moat phase, what are the key elements that you focus on that are different from the previous growth stages? Um, good question. Uh, so, um, you know, a lot of it still is, you know, a lot, a lot of it is, is, of course, internal in running the company and, and, and it's different at this stage, right? So, you know, at this point, you, you really got to have uh, built out a full, full management team. Um, and uh, if you haven't, then, then that's the number one focus. So last year, that was my number one focus. And we greatly expanded our, our management team uh, over the last sort of 18 months. And what are the key functions in a management team that you say this is like the minimum requirement anybody needs to have at this point? Which are the functions that you need to have? Um, you know, I, it, it, is, it is different uh, for different companies. You can structure it differently. Um, we have a f relatively flat management team. So we have a large management team. So I have 10 people reporting to me that are all in the management team. That's unusual. Um, mostly you group a number of functions under a couple of people in the management team and have a smaller management team. So six people, maybe, you know, reporting to CEOs, probably like typical when I speak to other CEOs. Sometimes five, you know, but we actually have the individual functions all reporting to me. Gotcha. That's how I built it. Um, there are pros and cons. It, you know, requires a bit more from me in terms of having more direct reports, but I also get like really good people for each function that want to report to CEO. Uh, so what, what are the functions we have? I can tell you that. Um, yep. So, um, so in terms of go to market, we have two functions. Uh, so my co-founder is, is CMO. Um, and then we have a chief revenue officer who is responsible for sales and uh, customer success and professional services. Um, then on the development side, we actually have three roles in the management team. So the typical one would be you certainly would have a CTO. Uh, you very often have and should have a chief product officer. Um, we, we didn't have design in the company and we thought design was really important to introduce. Uh, we had challenges doing it. We actually decided to elevate it into the management team to really have design get a seat at the table. So we have a chief design officer. Oh, wow. I think that's the first time I hear that. Yes, yes. So 18 months after him joining, now we actually have cross-functional development teams with design making a huge difference. So, um, you know, it's the right thing for us to do. Um, uh, and... Um, and then on the corporate side, um, we're a CFO. Um, 
we also, you know, so we have a, you know, we have a goal to over the next two years to take the company public. So we, we have legal in the management team and legal is you know, secretary board and legal is an important function for us. So that's we have a chief legal officer reporting to me. Um, we have a chief people officer. Um, and again, sometimes you would group things like this under CFO. We, we don't, we, you know, we have them in the management team. Um, and then, um, and then we have a COO and COO can, I mean, different things. COO can also have a number of people in that I have in the management team could report to them for us. COO runs a number of functions like IT security, uh, support, but, but also, um, helps me manage the management team in terms of almost, you know, like a chief of staff for the management team and sort of running projects across the company. But, but the, the team, the, the, the functions report to me. Um, that's how we have structured it. Um, and that means, you know, I have 10 people that I can work through. And that's sort of the big thing, I think, at this stage when, you know, we're getting to 400 people is you, you got to, you got to work through people. Um, uh, we also have uh, one more function, which is new, which is just instituted now in December, uh, because strategy is important. And strategy is not just about doing the strategy, but it's a lot of research you need to do and figure it out, understand it, and often it's quite technical. So we have a chief strategy officer. Okay, yeah, I counted first to nine, and I, I didn't know if I would dare to <laughs> to, to sort of <laughs> say it. But okay, then we are ten. Then we're good. That's 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 the function we have. I think it's particular to every business. Every business is different. This will works for us, right? And it works well. Right okay. Yeah. What's your take on this, Mika? From your perspective, when when you, when you look at businesses, like, do you have a a minimal requirement? Is there a warning sign if they don't have certain people in place? You see, like, or if they are ten, is that the warning sign? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, it's there's a, like clearly a big part of going through that scaling phase and finding your go-to-market fit is also about building out the proper go-to-market leaders. So I I would be suspect if a company at this size and stage does not have strong leadership beyond the CEO in terms of marketing, in terms of sales, in terms of product, etc. Customer success probably as well, right? So those are the things you would be focusing on putting in place. Then obviously you may have also reached a phase where you're ready to, you know, step up to the next level. So someone who's been scaling may, you know, feel that, you know, this next phase is not for them because the job becomes very different, right? But cer- certainly you would expect most of those functions to be in place. Then I think, as Fredrik says, there's a whole new set of company building operational uh, roles that are, uh, you know, you know, becoming very relevant at this stage. And if you want to think about the infrastructure of scaling the actual company, right? And I think that's, you know, we're, we're probably much more open minded about whether you put those in place or whether you are in the process of doing that. But clearly, having some thoughts around it and understanding that you need to build out that team. That, that is absolutely critical. Okay, you mentioned that in this phase, uh, the company can have outgrown certain people. So when do you think it's uh, the right thing to do to bring in another CEO? And maybe, and how do you sort of handle the founder or CEO that has brought the company thus far? <laughs> Let's spice it up a little bit. Yeah, just to be super clear, <laughs> for full disclosure, this does not necessarily relate to the CEO, particularly not in this case. Oh, okay, yeah. and other, CEO, <laughs> other people in the organization. Do whatever you want with the question. No, but it's it's it's... It's 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 very common for people to you know due to personality, due to experience, due to preference, 
to be a really good fit for, you know, some people want to work at the super early stage, like being incredibly creative, throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. There are other people who are great builders. So building for that scaling phase and, you know, testing new things and making sure it works and, you know, adding new people to team. And, and then there are other people who are more adept at doing that in a super structured way than at scale. And even beyond that, as you become a really, really large company, there are probably people that are more adept at just running things and not necessarily innovating on a daily basis, right? That That's down to experience, preference, and personality. And yeah. I just think you need to be open-minded about it. Then obviously, the, the other side of that equation is a lot of people will grow, right? So even you, you, know, you, you, you may not have done this particular phase before, but you have all the prerequisite skills and interests in doing it, and you're very open-minded and, and you know, intellectually curious. You're learning on the job, and therefore you accelerate through that phase. It's, it's about that balance and, and you know, balancing that out and I think having honest conversations about it and being open-minded about it. Yeah, and Fredrik, did you know from the start that uh, you wanted to go through the, this whole journey uh, and these different phases? Um, yeah, yes, I did. But this is also my second start. I, I ran, you know, ran a, a, a started a company venture funded in, in, in London before this uh, top tier venture funding and we, we grew it. I, I was not the CEO then, um, uh, but I was a co-founder. Um, and uh, so I'd seen the journey through it. So, you know, I, I absolutely, but I'm, I'm full of admiration for people who are like 26 and grow, grow into a role where they run a company, you know, the size and, and do it, you know, some, some people actually do it quite well. Um, so, and there is a lot of structure you can help put around it there. You might benefit from putting a COO in, um, uh, and a strong CFO and put a, a bunch of functions under them. And then the company building stuff, which the, if you, you know, you, 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 the, the, that you can actually bring in to some extent knowledge around doing and then it depends on how how strong you know if you, if you have a good culture people enjoy working in the business product very innovative and you could go to market model you know it there's there's a lot of strength in founder-led businesses i would say yeah uh, but as as mika said it's sometimes it doesn't work you know sometimes it Entrepreneurs are really great at finding opportunities everywhere. <laughs> and one of the things that, you know, when you come to the size of that we are, so everything goes much slower. Stick to the plan. You achieve lots of stuff, but a pretty big ship. And you cannot sort of change the direction of that too much or too often because then people actually, like, it, it doesn't work. And so you have to, um, you have to, actually do you have to actually think it through very carefully because you only have a couple of cards to play <laughs> and and i think jeff bezos says this really well um you know when he talks about amazon he says you know look um somebody just congratulated me on the quarterly results i didn't think much about it i, I can't I have no effect on the quarterly results i'm thinking about the quarterly results three years from now those are the ones i'm working on, right right i we're not there but we work I, you know, I today, ha I'm, I'm almost done worrying about 2023. Just at a board meeting yesterday and, and sort of finalized the budget. I, I'm now starting to think about 2024 because that's what I can. If I don't, if I don't do things now, actually, I, I won't have an impact on 2024. Right. right. So, uh, so it takes much. It, it, it's the cycles are much longer. 
there's a benefit to that as well. You know, think, you know, it's more structured. It, it, you know, it, it's quite erratic to be. You know, when you only have funding for six months and you have to achieve all these things. So there's, you know, there's good things about it as well. And when you steer that super tanker in the right direction, it is a super tanker. And and over time, really, really, you, you, I mean, you know, we have a dev team of 100 people. You can make a lot of things happen that you couldn't do over time with like. 20 I mean, just coming back to what you said earlier, Frederick, about strategy, right? And how strategy becomes so important. It's just down to what you're saying now. Like, you know, what you decide strategically to do and what you decide not to do has a pretty big impact. And you can't change it on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis, right? You have to have some longevity because otherwise it's going to be impossible to get 300, even 500 or 1,000 people to follow, right? So, sticking to something which makes sense and which is strategically sound and then communicating that in a super clear fashion so that you build followership and understanding and alignment that's that's a completely new challenge i would say at this phase compared to you know what you can achieve at the earlier stages where honestly you can you know hack your way to a lot of this but Thinking about those strategic alignment things and how to communicate and get buy-in and onboard on that, it's a really big challenge. Right. Right. That's very interesting. And I just realized uh, uh, two things. Frederick, you probably just killed the dream for Thomas and I. Uh, we will never be CEOs of large companies, Thomas, because we are people <laughs> that run after every shiny object we find. <laughs> Uh, we uh, so Th Thomas, I'm I'm sorry to tell you here today, but uh, it's, it's never happening. It's not in the books for us. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Are you tired of communicating with prospects through PDFs and slide decks that get lost in long email threads? Get Accept's digital sales firm empowers revenue teams to increase their win rate by engaging and understanding buyers from opportunity to sign deal. A microsite easily shareable to all stakeholders by a link. We can share sales content and quotes and communicate to get the contract signed. A collaborative buyer experience that wins the deal. We call it a digital sales firm. Listening to you guys talking about these things, you know, I'm imagining here a little bit. I'm coming in with some assumptions, you know. It's a ship that's it's it's a much bigger ship. Like you said, Frederick, it's it's you have to carefully maneuver it because you can't make too many turns. And and Mickey, I want to ask from your perspective, when you see companies of this size, besides obviously the strategy and having the, the proper leadership team in place, are there other key focus areas that you feel are key to emphasize and double down on right here, right now? Yeah. So can I just come back to our discussion about moat? Yeah. Because it's, it's such an important concept, right? It's really important that we define it and that we understand it. Because there are companies that enter this stage that will plateau and peter out because they haven't really thought about defining a moat and what their moat is going to be. And a moat is, you know, what is my long-term sustainable competitive advantage that will keep my, you know, m keep me at a distance from my competitors? What is it I do incredibly well that they cannot copy tomorrow with, you know, four super smart developers out of Google and then just scale that online? And and the, the thing I wanted to specifically stress is that is not about, you know, an intellectual feature pissing contest on, on product. It's not necessarily about product features, right? It can be about positioning. It can be about, you know, who is this product for? Is it for a business user? Is it for a technical user? Is it for an enterprise? Is it for an SME? Mm -hmm. It can be about data. 
what is the data that I have through my product and my interaction with my customers and the market that makes me be able to you know make much smarter and more insightful decisions and build the product in a way so that the data becomes part of the product right it can be about the brand you're building right it can be about the organizational culture you have so you can scale your organization you can onboard people you can align them better right all of those areas are super relevant when it comes to building a moat. I just wanted to make that super clear that it's not about the feature contest. Yeah, and I, I guess it could be a strong partner network as well. I think we have experienced Indeed, that. Indeed, 100%. Like your, your go-to-market can definitely be your moat, right? If you've built a really like, take HubSpot, they were super scaled at building that, you know, agency channel partnership where, where they, you know, were able to scale to that. Definitely part of their moat. Um, so I just wanted to stress that because it's a you know often misunderstood co- concept. Yeah. Uh, and then you know what else can go wrong? <laughs> Everything can go wrong, obviously. But but you know s- some of the typical challenge I think is how do you scale a culture from a company that's been you know maybe fast entrepreneurial hustling into what Frederick described as much more of a super tanker that's way more structured that you know sets a direction and changes that way less often and where you need to get a lot of people aligned to that. That, that That's a really big challenge that, that a lot of companies fail in. Similarly, recruiting at scale and onboarding people so that they can become productive and understand what is their job, what is the mission we are running this company on and how can I you know align to that. That's That's another part. Right. I think in terms of marketing, we discussed the importance of diversifying your go-to-market motion so that you're not overly reliant or dependent on one go-to-market motion. I also think this is the phase where branding comes into place. Because if you want to build a really large and sustainable company, the brand, i.e. what you stand for, what you deliver, how you are different, that becomes really, really important, not only on the customer and business partner side of things, but also on the employee branding phase, right? So understanding for people who join your organization, understanding what company am I joining? What are, what can my expectations be? And, and then, you know, I, I've said this already ad nauseum by now, but, you know, the communication aspect, communicating to employees, to customers, what, what is the, you know, what is my brand promise? What am I going to deliver to you? What can you trust me to always do? To financial markets, once you start to talk to larger growth investors or private equity or even public markets, right? That communication aspect about explaining what company you are and what you're going to do becomes really, really critical. It's very difficult. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think you're, you're on to three, th- three good things here, Mikael, in terms of like culture and processes, br- branding and, and communication. Um, and so the internal office is very much around uh, the culture and the processes, and um, so the, and and uh, so culture is about having that great culture and be able to scale it. Um, so you know we were end of twenty twenty one we were like two hundred thirty people, and then we added one hundred and twenty five people in a year. And people ask, okay, well, how can you do that and retain the culture? And that's sort of about the maximum number of people you can add. But if you actually have a really strong culture and each and every team that you have and each and every manager live and, and li- lives that culture, and then they get a new person on board and the person comes in. And when you interview that person, you talk about the culture, you interview for culture fit. Today, 
I'm going to have a session with all the new people who are starting in December. And I'm going to talk about culture for an hour with them. So it's the first thing that they, uh, you know, get, get in their onboarding. Then actually, you know, if you have that strong culture, new people absorb it. And you, you actually, it, it actually gets stronger over time and not weaker. And you, you, of course, keep working around it in communication. And then, as you said, Mikael, processes. You, you got to start be process-oriented. You got to build processes for things um, like recruiting, like projects, like how you run things, like HR, so things work. So you get all that friction out of the way. Um, but that's pretty like, you can hire good people who know how to do that at scale in a mo good modern way. Okay. Branding is interesting. Um, I, I made the mistake at my previous company at the sort of growth, starting to build a growth engine to hire a brand marketer as, as a CMO. Uh, <laughs> We've all been there, Frederick. We've all been there. <laughs> and, uh, and we never entered the growth stage. <laughs> so we had to change and, and hire a, a customer acquisition leader. And then, wow, did we grow, right? So, uh, and then you actually build your brand that way. Through customer acquisition, you can build your brand. But as Mika said, at some point, and, and, and for us, you know, $35 million in AR, we are starting to see that. We're not there yet, but we're starting to see that, that, that branding is starting to become more important. So we just hired a, a VP of brand and communication to come in starting in January and, and really sort of help us sort of get our message out about our point of view in the market. And how And then more and more, if your budget goes towards that, then less to customer acquisition. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, uh, Frederick, what is your moat? Yeah, that's a good question. So as, as I mentioned, so, you know, the really big thing for us is to help marketers with their data and answer the question, you know, what happened today? Like, <laughs> what, what, and, and, and all of that is contained in the different marketing products that they use. That's where the, the data is, but they have to put it in one place. Right. And two years ago, there were 7,500 marketing products. Today, there are 10,000. So there's 10,000 marketing products. So every third customer that we bring on board, brings with it a marketing product that we have never seen. It's like fishing in the Amazon. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, every, every month they bring up a fish they have never seen before on the fish market in, in and, um, So, you know, we have and, and, and our competitors have built out a really large library of marketing connectors to pull down the data from all these different things. Um, all these different marketing products. And, you know, we now have a collector library of, of over 500 uh, marketing uh, products that we support. Right. Um, and we add new ones. So, it, and, you know, we have a go-to-market model, with, which is mid-market, and we add sort of 60, 70 new customers every month. So it's quite hard. And, and, and not only do we do that, because it's not enough to bring in your data. Raw data is not so useful for marketers. They actually need to have the data uh, put together in a, what we call a business-ready format so that it's all put together and they can actually analyze their performance. And to do that, uh, we also help them with that because we understand all these 500 different connectors. And we have built the data model of how they are all connected and we keep building that data model. And those two things combined are, has taken us, you know, uh, six years to build. We're building it out and it's a slow, gradual process. And, but when you come in as a new customer, it's magic because very likely we have the connectors you want. When you connect them, not only do you get your data, but it actually is put together without anybody having to do any SQL. Um, and, uh, you know, and 
as a result, we are still competing with a few companies that we were competing with five years ago. There has been in, in sort of marketing data has been new, no, no new at the scale that we do mid market or enterprise where we really solve the problem of marketers. No, no new entrant in five years. There have been maybe two companies who've sort of dropped off. Uh, and, and now really we, we, we see ourselves having three competitors, um, plus some sort of more generic data, data companies. Yeah. And I'm curious, is this by design? Because I get it how it's really difficult to replicate, you know, all the 500 connections you guys have and the ability to understand and dissect data. But is this something you thought of that, you know, we're starting now and in five years, this is going to be our moat or it turned out to be that way? It's by chance. That's a good question. Um, you know, n- no. Well, when we when we set out to do this, um, what was really, and we actually did a pivot. We didn't do what we do now. We did something slightly different. We worked in the same space in, in the sort of marketing and advertising space. We did a different product, which wasn't so well strategically positioned. It, was, it solved the customer need, but it was, in, the, in, in our case, it was a Facebook advertising tool and was a little bit too close to what Facebook were doing and doing for free for it to be strategically well positioned for us to, to you know, build a billion dollar business over time. Um, so we had a long think about what we wanted to do and we wanted to, we, we thought at that point less about m- moat and we thought more about <laughs> put, putting ourselves in a category where one, we were solving a problem that nobody else was solving. That was important to us. Didn't want to build something that everybody else is building. Right. And two, um, that, you know, the likes of Google and Facebook, uh, couldn't build themselves because we knew that if they can build it and they give it away eventually for free, it's a, it's a hard space. We want we wanted to benefit from the market they created, and we wanted to partner with them, but we wanted to be far enough away from them that they wouldn't build it. Um, in our case, they don't really build what we do because it's about collecting data from Google and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. They're all competitors. They don't share data with each other. But naturally, a third party has to do this. Uh, and it and it opens up a good space for us. So so we were focused on that solving a customer problem and being in sort of a, a place because we had a product that solved the customer problem but wasn't well strategically positioned. That was really important to us to be well strategic positioned. Um, that's what we focused on. To be honest, I I think when you're seeking product market fit, I think that is what you should focus on. The moat thing, I think you got to get your head around late. You can get your head around later. If you try to do too many things early, you will die because you'll never get product market fit. Yeah. Mikael, I see you're nodding. Yeah, no, no. I just, you know, I just so want to echo what Frederick says there. Like this, this, you know, you should be focused on, on basic principles first. And then, you know, you make sure you crawl before you walk and you walk before you run. Right. And I just want to, you know, come back to with the risk of sounding like a broken record. If you think about the moat that Frederick just described, right? Yes, it's product, but it's it's not 500 connectors, right? Anybody can build a connector, but building and maintaining 500 connectors, having a guarantee that you will build a new connector in days or weeks, whatever connector people want to bring on board, that capacity is amazing. But then that whole data refinery piece, right? That you will have that data at your fingertips and it will be structured. It will be formatted. It will be, you know, everything. It will be put into the shape and size that you want in order to make faster and better business decisions that allows you to cater to business users who don't know SQL or Python, right? So 
it's a multifaceted moat which builds on you know product it builds on data it builds on positioning it's just so many different aspects of that yeah yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and michael i have a question actually for you i just thought of that now um how do you actually validate you must see a lot of companies in your role that are have grown into a decent size things have looked really nice metrics are where they should be and then they show you this uh, nine out of ten times everybody has this damn chart i don't mean to offend anybody but uh, it's like here's the chart the competitive landscape everybody is in the top left corner we're in the top right corner <laughs> and nobody's like us like how do you actually validate that what they believe is their competitive edge and that gives them that ability to always be in the forefront is true and not just something that they believe themselves? Great, great question. Uh, you know, f- for us, it starts with having a view and conviction and being specialist and niche and doing one thing and one thing only and hopefully doing that relatively well. We have an informed opinion about markets and categories around software and we understand who the big companies are and where they're moving, right? So we, we, we're very relatively well-oriented in terms of understanding what's an interesting space, what's an interesting product, what are the, you know, what's the value proposition rather than the features that solves a market need here. Uh, I think that's the first thing. Se- second is just due diligence. Understand product and talk to people. Dig deep. Uh, don't take their word for granted. <laughs> uh, ma- make sure to you know really penetrate that. And and oftentimes what happens is you know we we take a different view. Uh, you know because every company, like you said, will portray that four by four matrix or two by two matrix in a way where they can put themselves in the upper right corner. But it turns out that the matrix is actually inverted, uh, and so they're actually in the bottom left corner. So that, that that does happen quite a lot. So so another question here. So what are the key metrics that you track now compared to what you did in the past, Frederick? That's a good question. Um, yeah, they do change, right? So growing, starting with product market fit and going into the growth stage, the core metrics that we track were our go-to-market metrics. So customer acquisition cost, uh, payback time, CAC over lifetime value, um, these type of, of metrics. Um, and um, I think that that serves you really well because um, if they improve as, as you scale, then you you know you're you're really going in the right direction. And if you see that they deteriorate, then then you actually are, you know, then your your model is not going to scale so well. And you need to find some rebuild it or find something new or diversify or something, right? So so we focus on those. Um, I think what you learn is you can um, have pretty good. We have very good customer acquisition metrics. You can have good customer acquisition metrics and still build an unprofitable business. Um, uh, and um, I mean, partially that is because you're fueling growth, long-term growth. But part of it is also because you probably are very focused on just those customer acquisition metrics and building growth. And you probably not so focused on other efficiencies in the business. So what we have started looking a lot at now and, and, and this is now super timely. I think now everybody looks at it, but we started looking at this even last year when everybody still looked just on growth, um, is the bottom line, uh, metrics of like re- how really this translates into, um, how much cash you're consuming or ultimately what it takes to make the business profitable. Um, and the metrics around that. So two metrics that we look at now, 
uh, are rule of 40 and um, what's called the burn multiple. Um, and so especially I like the burn multiple because the burn multiple is a little bit like the customer acquisition metrics because the acquisition metrics say, how much does it cost you to acquire a customer? But you only look at the marketing and, and sales expense. Um, the burn multiple takes more the view of like, I'm an investor in the company, for example. <laughs> how much does it cost me as an investor in the company to have the company grow? Well, it's ultimately the amount of cash. I don't care about what you do. The, the ca what cash do you consume at the bottom line? Um, and so it says, you know, based on how much you grow revenue, how much cash are you consuming and that ratio that's your burn multiple, right? And so it starts to become healthy at some point, not too early in the business, but we're $35 million in AR where we are, certainly, to look at that. So, Mikael, as an investor, uh, what do you say with this, how, how the metrics might change when it comes to what, what you're looking at? <laughs> No, I, I fully agree with. I fully agree with. Okay, Bert. thanks. I, you know, I've, I've obviously, put, <laughs> I've obviously, I've obviously put myself out there publishing an article on your guys's platform saying why I hate the rule of forty, right? So it's, but you know, to to Fredrik's point, this is where the rule of forty comes into play and becomes relevant at this sort of stage and scale. And I would argue, just like Frederick, that the burn multiple is an even better metric because it resembles you know, the return on capital employed, which is what every investor is looking for. It's not perfect, you know, a perfect you know, analogy to that, but it does take you in that direction, right? But, but certainly thinking about profitable growth, leverage and scalability in your business model becomes much more important at this stage as, you know, you know if, if the key focus of the previous phase is, custom, you know, scalable customer acquisition, you expand your lens to think about the overall scalability of the company, right? And how does that translate into long-term profitability? So yes, I, I fully agree that those types of metrics become much more important here. Yeah, and we see this burn multiple. I think it was Dave from Kraft in the US that instilled this expression some years ago. Like, what is a good burn multiple, Mikia? <laughs> uh, so so the, the right question is it depends on the stage right you know if you think about it for, for in the early innings right your, your burn multiple will be absolutely dreadful because you have no ARR right uh, and I think at this sort of stage where I spend most of my time which is between product market fit and go to market fit a burn multiple between one and two is widely considered you know a reasonably okay one uh, obviously, there are companies that, that can burn less and there are companies that burn more. Depends on what market you're in, what type of product you're building. But I would say a good rule of thumb is somewhere between one and two. And and another, there's also what's exactly the definition of it. You can always play around with that. But I think just like Net Promoter Score, I think pick a definition. And what's more important than anything else is to see if you can make it better every quarter. Yeah. Um, because if you do, then your, your business will likely look a little better every quarter and eventually you get something really good. Great. All right. So if we would try to sum this up a little bit here to, to end off with. So when you go into this phase, uh, what are the key differences and things that you think companies should think of if they're going to do this in a good way? So Frederick some bullets from from your side so one of them is strategy actually matters you got to actually you know make sure you 
pick a position you want to move to. It includes product marketing and positioning so that actually what you invented early that had some customers that liked it actually creates a category that makes sense and can fit into a budget. When you're $100 million, you need some enterprise budgets in there. And so thinking that through so that you end up in a place where it makes sense and you're in a category and uh, and you're differentiated and it works competitively, you got to keep working on that growth engine. You probably got to diversify it. You got to see where you move, whether you move up market or you double down on where you are, but you do it more geographically dis- dispersed or with more, more products. Um, and, that, and that's something we, we actually didn't talk so much about is that at some point, but it's probably when you're larger than we are. So we haven't started thinking about that. You had a, a second or third product. Um, you see companies above $100 million in ARR are doing that. Um, and, and then finally, you know, like when you get to this scale, you got to have processes in the company so that things really work and that you gradually can scale and you can cascade things. And communication is important, internal communication. External communication starting also be important and actually people will listen to you <laughs> when you speak because you're reasonably large. Thanks. So, Mikael, also to round off the series a little bit, why, why is it important for companies to sort of understand the concepts of these three stages that we've talked about with the private market fit, go-to-market fit, and uh, the growth and moat? It, it comes back to priorita- priorities and what you optimize for. It's about learning to crawl before you learn to walk, learning to walk before you learn to run. If you try to sprint before you've learned to crawl, you're going to fall over and you're going to fail. So being very laser focused on a specific goal and a priority that you optimize for at these different stages is critical. So optimizing first to find product market fit, optimizing then to find go-to-market fit, and then optimizing for long-term growth and moat, that gives you the best chances of building a really, really large SaaS company. That is a great way to finish this series off. So thank you so much, Mikael and Frederick, for for coming on the show. Uh, And we look forward to doing a lot more stuff with you. So if anybody wants to talk growth and moat, they know where to find you, I suppose. You're all over LinkedIn. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care now. Daniel, what are your key takeaways from the episode today? Uh, I like what Mikael said at the end here. Like, you know, there's a time and place for everything. Like he he used the metaphor, like first you need to start walking and then running and then doing the somersaults. He maybe didn't say somersaults at the end, but (laughs) you you can't overthink it in the beginning. You know, you need to make sure that, you know, you have a product that people wouldn't like to buy that are not just your friends. And then you find a scalable motion and channel and so on. So make sure you do things at the right time. And then I think when it comes to moat and, and growth, I thought it was really interesting that he said, it could be many different things. You know, it's not just your product or often maybe it's not your product. <laughs> it is something else that is that competitive blocker. In this case, Frederick had an example of like, you know, they're building these connectors and maintaining them and so on. It's really difficult to catch up to. It's not just about money. You need to have the competence. You need to know who they are. You need to prioritize them. So, you know, really when you're at this stage, figure out like, what is that one thing that makes you stand out, that really adds value to the customer and that is really tricky to replicate, even if you have endless amount of money. 
Yeah, so you picked two now. Yes. Uh, that's not fair. So uh, <laughs> let's see. Let's see what's left for me. There's tons, tons of great stuff in this episode. Yeah. Okay. But what I found was interesting is also to hear Frederick talk about how he built his leadership team, how he wanted to make sure that he had really senior people that could both implement the culture, but also to reach excellence in all of these different areas and when you are in this stage you you need to have a a good CFO if you are planning to go public as he said you need to have legal in place and um, and then the other roles also and uh, I think this was the first time we heard three product roles in a leadership team with a chief design officer as well so yeah interesting and interesting to hear that that also had a big impact on their business focusing so much on design right right definitely so a fantastic episode and we hope you guys enjoyed it there's a lot more stuff to come here good stuff to come and speaking about good stuff to come Thomas, very soon there's a happening in Copenhagen. It sure is. So we are really happy to have our CEO network, a really, really strong network here for for B2B SaaS CEOs. And we have our first meetup of the year in Copenhagen here on the 26th of January. So um, exciting to uh, maybe continue these discussions uh, around what we've heard today, but also to hear a lot about other experiences that that we can talk about and share within the community. And of course, uh, I hope you have your eyes on it that you have booked April 18th to 19th, because then is sassiest back, back in business, back in person. And it's gonna be a great couple of days. So I hope that we will see you there. You can find all the information you need at sassiest2023.com. There you go. Take care now and see you around. Bye-bye.